Good afternoon or good morning, everyone. Uh, morning, still morning. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm Andrea Montanino. I'm the director of the Global Business and Economics Program at the Atlantic Council. And I'm very happy to see so many people today uh, talking about uh, trying to understand about our beloved Europe. Uh, it seems that uh, we want to make Europe great again, which is, uh, uh, which is good. I mean, we need it. Um, uh, today's event is part of our uh, Euro Growth Initiative uh, that is led by a task force chaired by Stu Eisenstadt and Jose Manuel Barroso. And I'm also happy to see many of our uh, task force members uh, with us, uh, with us uh, today. We, we started uh, last March. Um, and since then, we, uh, we address some of the most pressing issues we see for Europe. Uh, I mean, we made a case for TTIP. We look at the benefit of uh, UK accession to the EU in 1973. Uh, we try to understand how uh, to promote more investment in Europe, uh, how to make financial markets working better, um, and we did it through our publications. You have seen them outside uh, the, the, the room. We did through uh, a number of events. We hosted, I think, five or six European commissioners in this month, uh, a bunch of finance ministers, central bank governors, a lot of market participants, because we want also to, uh, to have a mix of competences around, around the table. Um, so today's discussion, I really want to focus on the short term for Europe. And uh, uh, short term is this year, 2017, uh, which are the biggest challenges, but also the biggest opportunities for Europe, and how to build uh, US-EU economic relations that can benefit both uh, European Union countries and, uh, uh, and the United States. Uh, this is clearly a tough, a tough task for this time. Um, I uh, reading an interview that President Trump gave last week to the Times and the Build in Europe. Uh, I just quote the president. He said the EU was formed partially to beat the U.S. on trade, so I don't really care whether it's separate or together. To me, it doesn't matter. So uh, clearly, um, I think we are entering into a new uh, era, a new time, and I think it's extremely important that we make a strong case advocating the importance of good relations between United States and US, uh, US and EU uh, really to, to foster economic growth uh, in, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, I want this to be a very interactive and informal discussion uh, and also provocative. Uh, I will ask the panelists, uh, I invite the panelists to put questions to each other, to just bump into the discussion, comments others, and also please feel free to raise your hands if you have questions. Uh, at any time, I'll try to pick uh, questions here and there. And finally, uh, I also invite you to, uh, to tweet, to live tweet about the event, and use our hashtag, which is EU growth, EU like European Union uh, uh, growth. So let me present uh, our panelists uh, today. Um, Anna Palacio. Uh, Anna uh, was the first woman to serve as Foreign Minister of Spain from 2002 
2004. Uh, she had, of course, a very long and distinguished career. She was member of the Spanish Parliament, member of the European Parliament, uh, and uh, she had a lot of uh, activities, involvement with the World Economic Forum, uh, of course, the board of the Atlantic Council, and uh, she's the founding partner of uh, a Palacio y Asociados, uh, which is a consultancy and law uh, firm based in Madrid. Uh, she's, I mean, one of the most expert international lawyers, and uh, she defended or she worked with my former prime minister of Italy. Um, Boyden Gray, uh, Boyden is, uh, uh, was uh, ambassador to the European Union for the United States during President George W. Bush. Um, and uh, uh, he worked at the White House for 12 years, uh, first as counsel to the vice president during the Reagan administration, and then as uh, counsel to President George H.W. Bush. Um, is one of the most active members of our uh, Eurogrowth task force and uh, is the founding partner of Boyd and Gray and Associate, a law and strategy firm in Washington, D.C. Next to Ambassador Gray, we have Professor George Alagos Kufis. I uh, hope I said your name correctly. One of the few. Thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, I practiced for the whole week, believe me. Um, so George is, uh, uh, is Professor at Tufts University, the Fletcher School in, in uh, Boston or near Boston, uh, and he has the Karamanlis Chair in Hellenic and European Studies. He had a distinguished academic and political career. Uh, on the academic si uh, side, he was Professor of Economics in the Athens University and at Birkbeck College at the University of London, and he widely published on international economy, uh, microeconomics, uh, unemployment, economic growth, and many, many, many topics. Uh, on the political uh, side, he was member of the Greek parliament for uh, 13 years, from 1996 until 2009, and served as Greece's um, minister of finance uh, from 2004 uh, until 2009. And of course, he represented Greece in the Eurogroup and the ECOFIN uh, Council. And finally, uh, I'm joined by Shekhar Ayar. Again, I hope the name is well pronounced. Um, Shekhar uh, uh, serves as deputy chief at the European Department of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, he served before as senior economist at the Bank of England, even if he's an Indian uh, citizen, not a British one. Uh, Shekhar published more than 35 papers on uh, academic journals, including the American Economic Review, the European Economic Review, the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking, and Economic Policy. So he's a very distinguished uh, economist and with a lot of knowledge, of course, of view on Europe. Um, so having said that, uh, let, us, uh, let us start our uh, discussion. And I would like to start uh, with you on uh, say, the major political challenges that you see for Europe in uh, this uh, 2017. Uh, there is a real possibility that populism uh, and Eurosceptics uh, parties will reach power or will increase their, their role uh, in many European countries that will have elections in the next uh, uh, few months. Uh, the Netherlands in March, uh, France in April, May, Germany in fall, and very likely Italy 
uh, in, uh, during, during this year. So in all these countries, populist movements are already present and can, uh, can increase uh, their, uh, their role. Uh, my feeling is that this populism uh, does not have uh, a real alternative. There is not a real proposal. Uh, at least uh, there, is a there is not a common view among the different populist uh, movements across uh, Europe. So it's very difficult to imagine uh, these parties ruling Europe and giving a common view and a common direction. So my question for all of you for starting is, what do you think the EU as a whole can do uh, in very concrete terms, say in the next six months, in order to contrast this and to show that there is something that European Union, European institution can make to create more uh, jobs and growth. Just suggest two, three concrete ideas that you would put in place if you, if you would have uh, the chance. Anna, maybe you can, you can start. Wow, that's a hundred million dollars question. Well, first, and I know that Time is a scarce commodity, but I think that, thank you for organizing this. I think that the European Union lately, and frankly, is misinterpreted, and this quote by President Trump shows it. And uh, the Atlantic Council keeping this transatlantic vocation that is European Union, it's also NATO, but it's uh, Europeans, uh, Europe whole and free, which is something that suddenly seems to have vanished from the radar screen of the commander-in-chief of this country, uh, it's, uh, it's great. So, concrete issues. Well, there, are, there is one big area that is not moving and it's not going to move in the, in the, the, I mean, in the near future, which is the internal market. We could discuss about this. There are two areas that could move and that we should push on them. One is the energy union. There are many initiatives from, uh, I mean, from grids to pipelines, from uh, LNG exports from United States. This is an area that just resonates with citizens, which is in the end what we need to do, that European Union resonates with citizens. In this area, this area that also covers climate change, and we don't have, by the way, the intention of having political scrutiny on scientific, uh, scientific studies. Uh, this is another issue to be, I mean, to be highlighted. So first area. Second area, the digital agenda. These are two new areas, two frontier territories of the, of the European Union. In the, the digital agenda, remember them for, for uh, the, the State of the Union address, the only thing that resonated was the roaming. Roaming are the charges that we have from <coughs> telephones in the European Union that doesn't, do not make sense. Well, this is an area where there are concrete steps from geo-blocking to other very technical issues, which is, which is, is good. Of course, uh, there is the area of the economy, but I will leave the others. The third area is, of course, security of our borders. Uh, well, that's, that's I would say that on this, we need to have a common effort. We are getting there. We are getting there. It's, it's difficult because this is the, the core of, 
of uh, the Westphalian idea of sovereignty is about uh, the, the, the police, the, the frontiers, and, and we know that all this, and we know well that, you know, bring back my borders <laughs> today, you have to rethink, and just, of course, we belong to, to a, into a, a project that tries to tear down walls, which resonates with presence of the United States and a great presence that was Riga, and not to build walls. But this, this is the, the third area, having common policy, I mean, common just surveillance of our external borders. And I leave the economy for the rest, so three areas, three issues. And paradoxically, as I say, nothing in the internal market. This is not going to move in the traditional way. Boyden, what's your suggestion? Well, when you say that we should, you should, Europe should have an internal mar market for digital, digital, for energy, that is an economic statement, you know. And um, at least I So think you became an economist, you see, immediately. So. Well, you know, for us, the economy is the euro and the banking union, of which you have written a lot. Sorry. So I think that the thing that Europe could do the quickest and the fastest, that would bring the quickest... Uh, response would be to do a massive deregulation along the lines that our current president is doing. Uh, people say, oh, restructuring, reforming, it takes too long. But look at what, ha look at, at, at what has happened to our stock market uh, just in the last few, few weeks. Look at, what, look at what, what has happened to our consumer confidence. Look at what happened in Great Britain uh, right after Brexit, free from some of the tight regulations, consumer confidence went up, consumer uh, spending went up. So I think that's the fastest thing that can happen. Uh, it does involve a single market. You could, you could say that the f lack of an internal market is the same thing as too much regulation because you have to get 28 approvals for anything you want to do with cell phones. 28 uh, countries have to approve. That's 28 regulators that you don't need or 27 regulators you don't need. So I would say that massive deregulation um, would, would give hope, would spark investment, would spark increase in markets, would, would, would have quicker impact than almost anything else um, Europe could do. And if you announce it with seriousness and intent to cooperate with the United States on this, I think you would get very, very quick results in terms of uh, capacity to make the political changes and the reforms uh, that are sort of a chicken and egg, but that are absolutely necessary uh, politically. <coughs> George. Okay, let me start by thanking you for inviting me to this panel and thanking the Atlantic Council and everybody who is, who is attending. You know, to, in, in my view, the, the biggest problem of Europe has been for some time now the resurgence of economic populism and economic nationalism, or if you like, populism and nationalism in general. And, and to my mind, again, there's little doubt that uh, the resurgence of uh, economic nationalism in Europe, as elsewhere, of course, has serious economic underpinnings which uh, we cannot ignore. And um, th for, for those of us who believe in a free, open, European and world economic system, uh, there is no short-term fix, I'm afraid. 
we have to think about about the deeper causes of uh, of this resurgence of uh, nationalism and do something to stop it before it spreads even further and why has nationalism and populism uh, emerged? Not only in Europe, but also in, in this side of the Atlantic, too. Um, you know, to my mind, it's because we, for too long, we have ignored those who lose from globalization. I mean, globalization is, is good for societies. Globalization creates great economic benefits, but there is no doubt that it generates a number of losers. Losers from the restructuring of economies that, take, that, that takes place, losers from the fact that countries concentrate on their own particular comparative advantages, etc. And uh, uh, if you look at nationalism, what has nationalism and, and populism targeted? International free trade, migration, you know, th and, and to a certain extent, open, 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 an open trading system. So uh, the losses are real enough for those who suffer them. Um, we cannot go on ignoring them, and Europe cannot go on ignoring the losers. Uh, if we keep on ignoring the losers, we are playing into the hands of populists and, and nationalists. So we have to do something about it. Um, the populists and nationalists have focused on the enemy without. They have focused on um, free international trade, open financial markets, migration. This is what uh, drove Brexit. Brexit was about migration. This is what is driving uh, the populists in France, the populists in the Netherlands, uh, in other countries too. This is what has been driving the populists in, in the United States, I'm afraid. So whatever we do in the short term has to be consistent with a long-term a lo a long target. And our long-term target would, do, would, would be to start thinking about redistributing income in a way that at least partially compensates the losers. And the losers are the unskilled worker, workers in our uh, economies. The losers are the regions of Europe that have suffered from globalization, even the countries of Europe that have suffered from globalization. Unless we do something about it, um, there is no, no hope, at least in the short term, of stopping, of, of stopping this, uh, this trend towards populism and, and nationalism. And uh, what we can do, what, what, what should be our long-term aim? And all the short-term uh, measures have to be addressed, in my view, to this uh, short-term aid. I think that Europe needs uh, new initiatives, a program of further economic integration. We have stopped taking initiatives in Europe uh, since, since the crisis, since 2010. Um, there must be new European programs. I, I agree with, uh, with Anna on some of you know, the energy union and the, and the digital, digital Europe. But I think we, we, we must have a, a new European objective. And the new European objective, to my view, cannot be, if we are to compensate, start compensating the losers, cannot be uh, that we, should, we must start thinking the unthinkable. And the unthinkable is, a, is making union, uh, the European Union more of a transfer union increasing the EU budget. An EU budget of 1% of GDP is never going to do anything <coughs> serious at the European level. Uh, it cannot compensate the losers. It cannot uh, redistribute income from the, winners, the winning regions to the losing regions or the winning countries to the losing countries. So I would, I would, I would say that what we should be doing is, is try, try to start thinking about increasing the EU budget beyond 1% of GDP, maybe towards 3% of GDP. Remember, the US 
has a monetary union, but it has a, a federal budget which is 20% of the US GDP. In Europe, we have a federal budget which is 1% of the EU GDP. And we must think about new programs. For example, I don't see why we shouldn't have a, a European-wide unemployment compensation program, for example. That's, that's an, a concrete example of, of something that, 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 that can be done at the European level. Not have countries shoulder the cost of unemployment, but, but, but share it among, among European uh, Union countries. I will, I will come back. Thank you very much. We are speaking and dumping together the problems that we have at the national level, where populism is rampant, and the, the fact that even the most, the, the, the most uh, cosmopolitans of Europeans are not on the European Union agenda. They don't see. I think that there is a lack of visibility of what the European Union does. And, and this is a different problem. Of course, it's in, it's in the end linked with populism, because populism use this uh, idea of, of the, the I mean, which, I mean, all these preconceived mantras of the, the bureaucracy of uh, the red tape, which is true. But remember the Brexit campaigns. In the end, it, it came to this, this caricature of what the European Union is. And the problem is that confronting this caricature, there was nothing. So this is why you asked me for three, three measures. And I think that we need to connect with the people. And what connects today is concrete, real issues Yes, of course, we need to, to just simplify. And we should abrogate much of the, what is the acquis communautaire. Absolutely right. And absolutely right that the internal market, in a, in a broad sense, includes the energy. But in the beginning, uh, I mean, I would say the core of what we consider the internal market is not there. And of course, the digital agenda is something that could not be in the, what we are going to celebrate, the 70th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. So I think that in Europe we have a common problem of populism that it's not, that we have in different ways in each country. We have populism from the left and populism from the right yes. in other countries. And in Spain, a dissolving populism that instead of going against the European Union, it goes against the Spanish, uh, the, I mean, the Spanish nation. But in the end, it's exactly the same problem. And then we have a different issue, is that unless we explain and unless the citizens understand that we have to go from 1% to 3%, by the way, you had a very good article a year ago or so on this, on this topic. Uh, unless we explain this, we are on the losing side because the, what we saw in the Brexit campaign is there, and it's there in Germany, and it's there in everywhere. Uh, I would say that Spain is very uh, pro-European Union, but this idea of, of uh, just mass Europa, more Europe, today doesn't sell anywhere. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, to show to the Europeans that there is some benefit from Europe, you have to create jobs. Uh, what's, your, what's your idea? What, what, what Europeans can do fast and quick to increase the growth rate, which is not bad at, at the end. Um, right. I mean, I think you're exactly right. And I think that, that George summed it up well, that a lot of the populism that we see now 
has to have underlying economic motivations. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a general problem with productivity slowdown. Europe is entering a phase of adverse demographics with an aging population and a workforce which itself is aging, which will tend to pull down structurally the rate of productivity growth. So we do need remedies for this. To this, let me just add one thing, which is if you look at the common currency area, um, one of the reasons that the common currency area was set up was that it was supposed to foster quicker convergence among the adopters of the common currency. If we look back at the 12 original adopters of the common currency, not only has convergence not occurred more quickly than it was in the past, it has actually slowed down. And you could argue that convergence has occurred more between countries like Germany and countries belonging to the German supply chain, which are largely outside the common currency area, rather than within the common currency area. So this exacerbates inequality it leads to persistent imbalances in terms of current account. It leads, and it's all sort of propelled by underlying competitiveness differentials, which have not really closed. So I think concerted action is needed to close those competitiveness gaps. And I also agree with George that I'm not sure that there's any quick fix. I'm not sure that this is a six-month problem. So I think that deep productivity improvements are needed especially in those countries where competitiveness have not kept up. This is going to take place through product market reforms. Um, I think Boyden was, was referring to deregulation. So we think that things like opening up professional services and uh, retail markets, harmonizing those across Europe, encouraging cross-border flows. Um, we think that labor markets can be, can be sensibly liberalized in many places. Right now, there's a lot of protection of incumbents, and unemployment is structurally high in a number of countries. That needs to go down. As you said, jobs need to be created. Productivity needs to be raised. So there's a whole host of policy recommendations which I think can be put forward, but I'm not sure any of them are immediate fixes. I think this is a long uh, program which will need to be seriously implemented over a period of time to deliver results. You want to <coughs> well, about the about the speed, which which um, I've heard so many times, all of us have heard. <coughs> when I first went to Europe uh, in January of 2006, there was a country uh, that was known as the sick man of Europe. How many of you know which country that was? Germany. 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 By the end of 2006, there was a superman of Europe. Which country was that? Germany. Uh, and this was the result, I believe, primarily of the so-called Hartz reforms that, that, that cost Schroeder his job because it, it, it entailed a very small recession in the beginning before it took hold. But I'm telling you, it went very, very fast. Now, if you can go from the sick man of Europe to the superman of Europe in less than a year, something is going on when you liberalize labor markets, which was the principal focus of that. But when you go and you push for an internal market in services, uh, energy, digital, finance. Um, when you do something like a TTIP um, negotiation, you don't exclude financial services from the negotiations on the one side and energy on the other, since they are two of the greatest drivers. Why would you do that? It's stupid. And think of it, it's got to be an internal market. And I'll just end by saying, the reason the U.S. economy is so good 
relatively speaking, and still good, was goes all the way back to Hamilton. He had this vision of a huge internal market free of uh, meddlesome state interference. Now, of course, there's a tension with federalism and our Constitution by going too far and and the application of our Supremacy Clause and Commerce Clause. You can go too far with it, that's for sure. But that's why we have a great economy. And um, if we look at the Atlantic as one great Atlantic economy, internal economy, and it really sort of is, the, the, the trade back and forth, the car industry. Where is the car industry located? I mean, BMW and Spartanburg. Where is the car industry? Is it here? Is it in Germany? Where is it? And so let's think of it that way and get to an internal market that is free of a lot of this meddlesome regulation. Then, and when you do that, then you can begin to sort of look at whether, in terms of US-EU, the complaints about trade and whatnot really do apply because they, I don't think they do. I think they do with other parts of the world, but between Europe and the United States, these trade arguments are simply inapplicable. May I just add to uh, the case of Spain? As you know, Spain was bankrupt and on the verge of being just being intervened <coughs> by the European Union. Now we are growing at 3%. What's the experience of the liberalization mm-hmm. of the labor market? I think that this is one of the key issues for the Europeans, and unfortunately, this goes against an entrenched culture of incumbents first, which means that young people find it very difficult. And but we need uh, in Spain it was Prime Minister Rajoy's success, and we didn't do one tenth of what we should be doing in terms of liberalizing the the labor market. Yet it allowed us to turn. Okay, to turn from a very dramatic situation to 3% growth, which for European standards, is, it's, it's great. Now, I mean, I will go back to one idea. Uh, in, of course, we need jobs. This is the first thing. We need, beyond jobs, we need uh, a perspective for the future. People in Europe, to a certain extent, uh, President Trump election here in the United States has responded to the same thing, and populism respond to the same idea that people are afraid of the future. Our people in Europe do not see a future for their kids. They don't see it. (coughs) For us, it's much more complicated than for you because I think that we are aging, as it was said, and we we have these aspects that that we have to to address. But we need a cultural change that, you know, the future is there. It's not just for China, the future. Europe, we, we still have good basics in terms of research and development in in many areas. We need to free our labor market, but for that we need to trust the future, to understand that there is, that we can compete, that we can be there. And Germany is a very good example. Germany has this niche, and we we owe a lot to to, to, uh, Chancellor Schroeder, that change and that force and that redid all that. We, we, uh, we need to get back, get our future back, not our Great Britain or our, uh, or we need to get our future back. We need to be lo- to uh, to believe in the future because the moment we don't believe, and today Europeans do not believe in the future, the European Union is gone. You can do whatever you want. 
Nobody wants the European Union. Uh, they want, they, there is this nostalgia. That, that, as I say, it's generalized, but you want to <clears> go <throat> to the all good days, not understanding that the all good days, are, they, they, they are gone. They, in, in the sense of, I want my Great Britain back, or I want my jobs back. No, I, I want jobs, new jobs. Jobs are the future. And this is a, a, cultural, a cultural change that is uh, focalized in the <laughs> Europeans. Uh, you know what, we, uh, this, is, this is Brussels' fault. It's Brussels to be blamed, because it's full of bureaucrats, and they don't understand. They don't have a vision, and they don't look for the little guy. Uh, I mean, which in all this criticism, there is a part of reality. But I think that the, the problem is deeper. Europeans need to believe that the 21st century, we still have a role to play, and a relevant role to play. Not, it's, the world has changed, uh, but we have our role there. Uh, uh, yes, George. Yeah, let, let me just, uh, and then just, I have a question ju just one minute on, um, yeah. on uh, you know, Europe is, many people, people say that the European Union is like a bicycle. You know, you have, you have to keep cycling, otherwise you fall. And, and uh, you know, the last few years have, sh have shown that this is probably true, because in the last few years there, there are no major European initiatives. You know, after the enlargement and after the single market and after the <coughs> single currency, there are no major European initiatives. Uh, Europe has been quite defensive. We have been dealing with cr from crisis to crisis, more or less, uh, and dealing with crisis. So I, I think, you know, if the politicians of Europe have to make the European um, sort of project revive, there, there, there must be some new initiatives. And that, that's why I'm saying that we need some federal initiatives, some new areas where, where we, we shall have more Europe. Okay, in general, there are many areas in which we should have less Europe, but there are areas where we should have more Europe, and this is what we should uh, be looking for. Before giving the floor to two questions, and I want to just connect what you said. You talk about... Uh, <clears throat> believe in the future, hmm? and you just talk about new projects. So I give you a suggestion. Believe in the future means doing more investment, because you invest because you believe in the future. Uh, I have a question I would like to put to George and Shekhar on this. Uh, do you see space for a new project, a new initiative in the field of public investment? at uh, where member states can say for the next for this year next year to have some leeway have an extraordinary one off uh, expansion in the budget for public investment do you think this is something that can create more positive sentiment in europe do you think this is something possible uh, we know the political constraint okay but in economic terms, do you think this is something that can create, um, I mean, some more hope for the future and start believing in the future or not? So my idea is basically to have 2017, 2018, a 0.5% increase in public investment in all European countries that are below 3% in the deficit to GDP ratio. Uh, this will rapidly close the gap of public investment that we still have after seven years of the crisis. Shikha, what do you think? Um, so 
certainly we believe that there's a very important role for public investment. In fact, the investment recovery in Europe has been noticeably anemic, especially if you compare it to the US, which has had a much more vigorous rebound in investment. Now, there is a plan called the so-called Juncker Plan, uh, which is not, strictly speaking, public investment. No, the idea is to leverage the EU budget in a creative way to encourage private investment. But to the extent that the private investment is additional and would not have occurred in the absence of the Juncker plan, it has several characteristics of what we would normally call public investment. And it's concentrated, or at least the philosophy behind it, is that it's supposed to encourage cross-border investments. It's supposed to encourage big investments of the kind that Anna talked about, digital market, energy market, to the extent that it can also reduce bureaucratic barriers to cross-border uh, investment, it would be especially uh, uh, useful. So we think that that's very promising. President Juncker has recently come out with a proposal to expand it further, which we fully support. And then I think what you said about certain surplus countries uh, which have fiscal space, we certainly think that those countries that have fiscal space should use it. And one obvious way to use it would be public infrastructure, because that works not just in terms of demand stimulus, which of course is good, yeah. but more importantly, it creates a supply side effect uh, simply by, by increasing the potential rate of growth over a period of time. George? I would agree. I think that, um, I mean, I, I was the one who argued against short-term solutions. That the, but the only short-term solution I can see for Europe's plight is, is, a, fisc is a fiscal expansion of some kind. And public investment is probably the best fiscal expansion that Europe can have. You know, if we think about it, Europe is one of the few regions of the world with a potential for, short, for a short-term fiscal expansion. Why? First of all, because it has relatively high unemployment right now, even compared to the United States. And it also has a significant overall current account surplus, which is, which is quite big, even by historical uh, standards. So given that the current account surplus is mainly due to Germany, <laughs> this country is the only one where a fiscal expansion can originate, really. So, so if Germany wants to take a, Europe, a really European and German initiative, I mean, that, that's the only short-term solution for, for Europe. It's, it's to have a German fiscal expansion. Such a policy, if it is on public infrastructure, fine, but it could be a German tax cut. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not too bad either. This would, this would be a locomotive policy for the rest of Europe, because if Germany expands, it will draw many of the countries, uh, of the slow-growing European countries out of their problems. The, those countries cannot have a fiscal expansion themselves because they have current account deficits, many of them, or not a current account surplus. So, so the only short-term solution that I can see is, is, is a change in macroeconomic policy uh, with Germany taking the initiative and having a fiscal expansion of some kind, which it generally needs. Okay, general unemployment I know is low, but the current account service is huge. So I'm, I'm not sure that Germany will run into any... any uh, we'll see after but, but four. But politically, I, I, you know, I have been a politician and I know I have spoken with German colleagues. I know how difficult it is, but, 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 but it's still, you know, from an economic point of view, it's the only short-term solution that we can have, and it will stop populism in its tracks if Europe were to recover quickly. Thank you, George. I'll take a question here. 
Hi, Brett Fortnum from Inside US Trade. Um, given the attitude of the current administration toward Europe, can the US play a role in you know, the, the European recovery? Uh, and, and what type of initiative could that happen now that TTIP, as Commissioner Malmstrom has said, is in the freezer and that um, the Trump administration does not seem inclined to, to take, take that up? Are there other avenues, whether they're regulatory or other um, trade initiatives that we can see? Or is, it, is Europe on its own now? Oh. Well, I would uh, suggest that one thing that could be done is just look. I'm a broken record here, I admit, so just be patient. I won't be long. I mean, you know, we get out soon. Um, that the Transatlantic Economic Council, which was started by Chancellor Merkel in 2006, was very successful and was the seed for the bigger ambition of a trade treaty, which is called TTIP. Um, the tech was limited to just regulatory harmonization or mutual recognition or however you want convergence, whatever words you want to use, to try to minimize these regulatory glitches. Why should uh, anything uh, on automobile regulation be different on either side of the Atlantic when the cars are sold back and forth uh, daily? It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, it's just bureaucrats who want to keep their jobs, that's all. You know, it's just like, you know, getting Schengen started because there are a lot of customs officials that didn't want to get thrown out of jobs. So it took two years to get Schengen put in there. That's why we can't get a digital internal market because there are 28, you know, digital regulators who don't want to throw, be thrown out of work. So we have the same problem in this country. And uh, I think the two countries could, two continents could work very closely together just on that limited issue put aside investment disputes, put aside government procurement, put aside tariffs, which are a big problem anyway, and just limit to regulatory harmonization. They did conclude an agreement just very recently on mutual recognition for um, inspection of pharmaceutical facilities, manufacturing facilities on both sides of the Atlantic. Very successful. I mean, little steps maybe for little people, but you pile those things up and you've got something going. And I think that's where we could start right away, given the fact that we just concluded uh, a, a not insignificant agreement between the two continents. I, uh, Joe, I think that, I mean, two, pre two previous issues. First is that TTIP was doomed well before President Trump was elected. So let's not, you, we Europeans, blame on the Americans, this administration. No, take. Take the declarations by President Hollande, by Vice Chancellor Gabriel. I mean, it was there. I think that TTIP was extremely arrogant. I remember a dinner here with Froman, where he would he said this: "We will do it in a in a tank of gas." Hey. And <laughs> this, frankly, is very, very, very arrogant. Yeah, yeah. There were, I mean, Boyd, uh, Boyd <laughs> mentioned some, some areas where investment, <coughs> procurement, these are difficult things to do. Uh, you need probably more, more gas than just one tank. So first, <laughs> let's be realistic. And I fully agree with, with Boyd. Let's go back to the core of what we had. And then also be realistic. I mean, I remember I put uh, from the question about lifting uh, the LNG export ban. I said, well, this does not belong. Well, we have the LNG export ban lifted. So this has to be put into the 
into the, the good realistic things. My second, and may I, you know, I don't have to prove my Atlantis' credentials, which allow me to be very blunt. Do not harm. Why do I say this? Because if, for instance, today, maybe tomorrow, next week, there was an announced by the, uh, the administration that they are starting a negotiation with Great Britain, this is doing harm. Why? Because Great Britain is still bound by the treaties. Great Britain cannot negotiate a bilateral treaty at least for the next two years. And by launching this idea, by just asking who is the next Brexiteer, well, this doesn't help. I, the United States has just had the flag of Europe whole and free. And I think that all this is just contrary to this idea. So I hope that a common sense will prevail. <laughs> a question here. Uh, thank you. My name is Thanos Katsambas. I'm a non-resident senior fellow here at the Atlantic uh, Council. Um, uh, thank you all for the very insightful uh, comments. I think everybody would agree uh, here that there are no quick fixes. But since um, Andreas' original question was, what can we do uh, in the short run, you know, 2017, I would like to focus on two things that Ms. Palacio uh, said, which I, th I think are very important. Uh, the first thing is the complete lack of communication. I cannot think of any country in the world, uh, in the Western world, that people, the leaders, have explained what we mean uh, by losers and wh why do we have losers? Who are the gainers in this game? So no one has really said that globalization has really benefited the Far East uh, over many years, that it is an irreversible process. And if we agree on that, then of course the question is, what is the new role, as Ms. Palacio <coughs> said, of uh, Europe uh, in this uh, new world uh, order? And in my view, I think the, the obvious answer is some income redistribution that we all agree with. But then she said another thing, which I think is very important. This is... Question, go, uh, go to the question because... No, I don't have a question. Ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I should have said <laughs> that. We have to I, to I have question. to say, I don't Sorry. have a question. The second thing is that she said that um, we have to do things that resonate. And we have to start with small things. And the digital economy, it's a, an obvious example. I mean, for the average citizen, to be able to move from one country to another, uh, not to have roaming charts, so to be able to watch Netflix, you know, it's very important. So I just want to say that I fully agree with Ms. Palacio's approach that we need to have communication. We have to start with simple things that will resonate with European citizens and make them feel that they are part of, of a new Europe. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, one question here, then I'll go to my question back. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman, Senior Advisor at the Atlantic Council. Uh, Boyd and Gray presents a very appealing and attractive vision of, of transatlantic uh, market. Uh, but the United States has made a, sh a shift to the Pacific. It doesn't seem to me there's anybody in the administration who would share that view. And it's hard for me to see anybody in Europe who's going to be a spokesperson. Which gets me to my question. If Donald Trump can be taken at his word, and it's America first and buy America and build America, that's clear protectionism. And not only is that a threat to Euro growth initiative, but it could make that phrase a contradiction in itself. So my question is, if Donald Trump turns out to be protectionist, what does that mean for European growth? Well, and let me just, I, I, that's a question for maybe the economists, but I would just say, as I, repeat, 
what Europe and the United States have now is much more than a trading relationship. It, it, is, it, is, a, a, it is almost the same economy. And how do you be protectionist with your own economy? So it doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any, I think, and I think the Trump people will eventually come to realize that what we're dealing with is basically one, one economy. And when that happens, all these notions of protectionism are going to not apply, as I, I'm now repeating myself. So uh, I, I, I just don't, what? Let's hope so. Uh, no, I just don't, I just don't think, I just don't think that's, um, it, it, it does depend on, a, a, you know, a, a, an integrated internal market. And if all these countries break away from Europe, as Brexit suggests might happen, then there's a real problem. But we heard yesterday from the former prime minister of Belgium that the, the sentiment for leaving uh, the European Union has dropped very significantly in almost every country since, uh, since the Brexit vote. So uh, I, I'm, I'm an optimist about this. I think it's just going to take time for people to internalize it and uh, get to understand it. One thing I, I mean, this isn't what you're really asking, but I think it's important to, to, to get out of the way. One of the reasons given that you hear so often for why TTIP is stalled and was stalled in Europe before even Trump was even nominated or even, the, even entered the race, um, what, what's the reason for the opposition in Europe for it? And the way it's always been explained to the press that I've read in the press is, well, you know, we're going we're gonna, to uh, foul up Europeans' pristine um, um, environment. And, and I don't mean to be critical here, but who's choking to death right now in Europe? Um, who's having a hard time breathing? Who's having to uh, order cars off the road? It's not New York. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Houston. It's not Boston. It's not Washington. It's London, Paris, Madrid, Warsaw. And so let's not use the environment as some sort of straw man for knocking us down on, on trying to deepen our already, um, I think, pretty well um, integrated um, single market. Yeah, uh, George. <coughs> yeah, I, I, I think that protection... So in, in a way, sorry, George, what, what I would like to understand is imagine we go towards more protectionism mm -hmm. in the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. this might happen. It's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, <coughs> to me, it's not clear whether this is a good or a bad thing for Europe because maybe European companies can see an opportunity to come and invest more in the United States and produce here. I mean, we are not talking about China. Mm -hmm. We are not talking yeah. about Mexico. I mean, the European countries are slightly different, mm -hmm. the kind of products that they can start producing here. So yeah. what, what's your view of this? Yeah. I, think, I think that protection is a major threat. And, and, I, and I don't see the silver lining in this. Because if European uh, firms come and start producing BMWs in the United States, say, uh, they will be producing less, fewer BMWs in, in Germany. But they already do produce. So, so they do, well, of course, yes. Lot, but, lots but, of but, them. But, okay, but, but, but if the USA starts discriminating against firms producing outside of the United States and firms producing inside the United States, the real risks 
is, is to do things that have driven the world economy in, in, the, in the last 20 or so years, like offshoring and outsourcing and uh, uh, multinational investment and so on and so forth. And if, if the US starts discriminating, Europe will start discriminating. Because in, with protectionism, there is the, always the risk is not you know, protecting your own market, it's what your trading partners will do. So if we, if we go into a trade war where the US discriminates against foreign production and Europe discriminates against foreign production, you know, what, what, what else is there? You know, this is called protectionism. Yeah. And this is going to be, the long-term effect of this is likely to be very, very negative, even, even though in the short term, you know, investment in the US may rise if, uh, if Trump has his way. But the longer-term effects are likely to be very negative because this is a negative-sum game. It's not, a, it's not, a, not even a zero-sum game. It's a negative-sum game. It's, a, it's what we had in the 30s with, through other means. And, and, and this is extremely dangerous. And I don't think we should underestimate the dangers. Shikar, you want to comment on this? I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's too early uh, to speculate on the policies of the of the new administration but i will say that uh, yes i think there's very good empirical evidence gathered over a century that free trade in general creates economic efficiencies greater productivity gains more economic growth as we've touched on in the past uh, a, a few minutes ago there are concerns about the winners and losers from trade and i think that's a valid concern and although overall you might benefit from trade, I think we need to seek solutions to how the gains from trade are distributed. But having said that, I completely agree with George that trade is not a zero-sum game, and protectionism is, or perhaps even is a negative-sum game. Thank you. I have a question over there. Yes? Hi. Gregory Kulczycki from uh, Tufts University. So naturally, I have a question for the professor. Um, professor, you talked about redistributing uh, wealth to the <coughs> users of globalization. Could you talk and uh, elaborate more on methods of which we can uh, pursue that redistribution simply because I, don't fe I feel like time is not necessarily on our side uh, with the rise of far-right parties in Europe? So what are the best ways to effectively redistribute wealth in a way that would most, most satisfy those that have uh, lost or suffered from globalization? Thank you. No, I, I already mentioned a number of things. We need, we need for Europe, I will concentrate on Europe. I don't want to go into the, you know, the US uh, political debate. But in the European debate, I think we need more Europe in the social area. We need, for example, I, I mentioned one example, which is a European unemployment compensation program. Or, or European, at a, or, or program for, uh, for uh, restructuring and for um, retraining workers at a European level. This is what, what expanding the EU budget would be good for. You know, public investment and retraining and uh, restructuring and unemployment compensation or, or some other social measures that would, that would protect the losers. <coughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is why I think that the next worthwhile European initiative in the long term should be more, more of a social Europe rather than, you know, we have the single market, we have the single currency, but we don't have a social Europe, really. And this is one of the reasons that, that people in, in various countries are uh, so much against Euro Eurocrats, because Eurocrats do not administer social programs, really. <laughs> and, and they are um, 
also Europe is a very target, easy target for national politicians in Europe. Because one of the reasons that what, what Anna suggested is not happening in Europe is that it's very easy for, for national politicians in Europe to blame everything on, on, the, on Brussels <laughs> and never defend Brussels in their national political, uh, in the national political debate. Yeah, the, the problem, I think, <coughs> is we've, if we have time to build a social Europe, because, I mean, time is, is running. We have right? time to announce it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a question. Yeah. A mic here? Here. Yes, Steve Hankey, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, my remarks will be kind of directed to both Boyden and, and Anna, because I, I think they make two critical points that kind of should go together. Uh, if, if we look at, at the euro itself, one of the fathers of the euro was Bob Mundell, Professor Mundell. He, he's also one of the fathers of supply-side economics. He also happens to be a very good friend of mine, which we spend several weeks every summer in Tuscany with he and his wife. And I've discussed both supply-side economics, obviously, and the euro with him in, in great detail. And his idea of the euro was fundamentally a supply-side economics idea, not, not monetary economics or currency regime. He, if you, the idea was if you took the devaluation option away from the Europeans, they would get at the fundamental problem facing the European economies, which is a supply-side structural problem. That means deregulation. Get rid of the devaluation option so they can't do that, and, and they would be forced to, to deregulate and, and do what, what Boyden's talking about, which I completely agree with. The problem is, if you, if you look at the OECD indicators for reform momentum since, since 1999, they track 31 different things, it's just flatlined. Europe's done nothing. <laughs> There's been no deregulation. Uh, to speak of. And, and so uh, Boyden is, is optimistic. I, I'm pessimistic given that, that history and that track record, but, but that gets to Anna's point, and, and that is whatever you do in economic policy, if it doesn't resonate with the public, forget it. There, you can be a dictator and, and, and it's not going to happen if the public doesn't get behind you and, and you have public opinion behind you. So Anna, how do you get deregulation to resonate with the public in Europe because if somebody's living in Paris about a third of the year, I can tell you it doesn't at all. I mean, they just, unless you go to the small shopkeeper, of course it resonates with them. They know how it actually works because they're tangled up in the red tape. Well, I think that you have to put meat on this idea of deregulation. Deregulation is too abstract. So make this small shop uh, owner make uh, the, I mean, make it easy for him. Just, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I think that taxes are an important lever here from going against the sweet deals that uh, European Union is starting to go after these sweet deals that there would exist uh, uh, with big companies to the to the small thing that 
you have to lift. There are so many, so complex tax systems. Make the regulation, for instance, in this area. Make it easier for, for people. Make it just all, the, the, all being clarified. And then, frankly, in order to resonate, go for these sweet deals with some companies that, by the way, you, I mean, here you know them well because they are from here and they are in Europe and they are headquartered, they go headquartered <coughs> to, uh, to Luxembourg because they have a sweet deal there or to the Netherlands or we see the example of <coughs> Ireland. Ireland was, went ballistic when the, there was the ruling by the court. I think this you have to do because, because this is what people see. And there is a fundamental uh, injustice. And it's unfair that this big company, in the end, just pays a pittance, while me, I'm a worker, and I'm happy, I'm privileged because I have a job. But in all these taxes summed up, they take a lot. I think that deregulation is great. I fully agree with you. I mean, uh, the, the, this, uh, I mean, Saying that Europe is about the girding of the bananas is just a caricature, but there is a lot that has to be done. But in order that people understand and people see, it has to go into their lives, not some abstract idea of just stri uh, striking down regulation. If I could do it. <coughs> Who here in the audience is a real wine expert? Steve, are you, because you live in Paris, are you? I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think of the second or largest wine producer in France. I think his name is Gigas. Does that name mean anything to you? Yep. Does that? I don't know how many of you've met him. I've had the pleasure of meeting him, and you you could you could do this deregulation in less than a year if you put him on the road and put him all around Europe to talk about what it's like to be a wine producer in France with all the regulations out of Paris and out of Brussels. And he is the funniest human being I think I've ever met. And he would have people rolling in the aisles, and he would have the whole public screaming and shouting for what he wants. Anyway. Speaking so. of this, Boyd, and in the United States, I'm, as you know, I'm a resident of Maryland, and, and I can't order wine online at a low price and, and have it delivered to my house. Yeah, but this is the problem of the regulation in this country. Well, don't, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me just Which interrupt the, you there. On I, this, you are still... Uh... I, I was involved in some of the litigation on that. There's an unfortunate problem there, and that is, is that there's a constitutional amendment which deals with this issue. It's very unusual to have a constitutional amendment determine how products are distributed in this country. It's the only one. And I'm sorry that it exists, but there it is. <laughs> uh, Shikara, so I have a question uh, for you. I mean, we, we are talking now about regulation, deregulation. There is probably an area where we don't need deregulation, but we really need a better regulation, which is the capital markets in Europe. Um, do you think uh, building up a capital market union can be really a, a cornerstone for European growth? And where do you see, and how you see, United States can uh, teach something to Europe in terms of having better uh, regulator or better functioning capital market union? Yeah, I think that's a great point. So capital markets are much better developed in the U.S. compared to Europe. So just to take one index, the stock market capitalization 
relative to bank credit in Europe is about 60%. In the US, it's 300%. So I'm not saying you have to go to 300%, but <coughs> clearly there's a lot of room for growth for Europe. There's a, a lot of there's a corporate bond market in the US too. Uh, absolutely, yeah. uh, absolutely. So financing in Europe is extremely dependent on banks, and when there's a global banking crisis, then the shock to the real economy tends to be much greater than it is in places with a capital market. So I think they do have a blueprint. I think that uh, progress on the blueprint could be faster. There are some good plans for encouraging cross-listings, for simplifying prospectuses and making them pan-European. Uh, one thing that we've advocated uh, at the IMF uh, for, for, for Europe in particular is SME securitization, which sounds rather abstract, but it is quite important because in, in Europe, a lot of employment and a lot of output is produced by small and medium-sized firms, which are very bank-dependent. So they need to, to have a system where they can go to capital markets instead of banks. And um, in order to do this, you need to be able to securitize the loans that are extended to SMEs. So there is some movement in that direction, but it needs to be taken a lot further. And yes, I think a capital markets union would be a good example of something concrete that Europe can do, which actually is growth generating, job generating, would, would, would have all kinds of beneficial impacts, and is something that policymakers have in their grasp to do. Yeah, I, um, I, agree, that, yeah, I agree with Shaker, but it's, it's, a, it's a necessary condition probably, but I'm not sure it's a sufficient condition. Though. At least we start with the necessary. Yeah. Stuart. <coughs> I'd just like to uh, pursue the capital markets issue because I think one of the things that we need to stress in our report is that something like 80% of all the lending in Europe is done by commercial banks. In the U.S. it's 20%. Uh, and we have very deep capital markets, meaning we have more IPOs, we have more venture capital funds, we have more hedge funds. Is the problem in Europe a psychological problem, lack of risk, or is it a structural and regulatory problem? How would you encourage, in other words, more creation of everything from hedge funds to venture capital funds uh, that don't seem to exist? Uh, there are even, even uh, asset managing funds, the Black Rocks and Blackstones in the, in the, in the world, it don't exist. They really don't have large private equity funds. So again, is this a structural issue? Is it a regulatory issue? Or is it a psychological issue? May I say that there is at least a big component of what you call psychological, which is also cultural. And it's called the, the, the continental tradition of law. In uh, continental Europe, you are bankrupt once. That's done. It never goes out. So venture capital has a difficulty <coughs> culturally to penetrate, we should change our laws, our, our insolvency laws should be, should be changed. And this is probably Catholicism, you know, Max Weber, all that. I mean, it's, it certainly has, but it, it is now entrenched in our legal system of the non, I would say, non-common law countries, which is the majority of, uh, of Code Napoleon, uh, and one administrative country, which is all the France and all the South. There is at least this component. On the rest, I would leave the, 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 the 
the economies. But yeah, that's agree. great, and this is normally <coughs> overseen. And it is, it is a fundamental issue that we need to change. You have to take risk. You say risk aversion. It's not exactly risk aversion. Is that you? I mean, you go to the bank. You you have a loan. The securitization that you were mentioning is absolutely necessary. But on top of it, you have to change the minds of people. You can you can succeed, and then you can fail. And if you fail, you can succeed next time. I think we can continue for hours this discussion, but it's uh, 1.14 and I would like to finish on time. Uh, so I'd like really to thank uh, our panelists uh, and please join me in, uh, in thank you, uh, Boyan, Anna, George and Shikhar. Um, I want just to record two events we'll have uh, during the next uh, 30 days or so. Uh, February the 8th, uh, Christine Lagarde will join the Atlantic Council uh, for a public speech on, uh, uh, on a different topic, not the usual topic you expect for Christine Lagarde. She will talk about the power of transparency and the role of the IMF to increase transparency. And uh, on March the 10th, in the morning, we will release the report of the Eurogrowth Initiative. So you will receive the invitation. And we have already uh, Olivier Blanchard, uh, Jose Barroso, and uh, Xavier Rollet, the CEO of the London Stock Exchange Market, uh, confirmed as, uh, as uh, speakers. So uh, I hope to see you in uh, both events. Thank you very much.